This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us as we begin a new week, month, and quarter on the show just ahead. Middle East morning, at least eight Palestinians have died and dozens injured after Israeli raids in the West Bank town of Jenin. The second major military operation there in weeks, with Israel now calling the city a terrorism hub. We're live from Tel Aviv with the latest. Plus, Paris peace and an uneasy calm across France after days of violent protests. Fewer than 200 people arrested overnight. That, unfortunately, is a relative improvement. President Macron meeting with parliamentary leaders for talks on the crisis today. He'll meet with more than 200 mayors tomorrow too. And Musk Marathon, no rest for the world's richest man this weekend. We got strong second quarter sales numbers for Tesla. That's helping the stock pre-market. And new Twitter turmoil, Elon announcing a temporary limit on accessible tweets, citing the need to battle data scraping on the site. Now, limiting social media scrolling might be a positive for our mental health and, of course, our eyeballs too. But fewer eyes, not necessarily good news for advertisers and the business model long term. We'll discuss Musk's motives later in the show. In the meantime, I'm keeping at least one eyeball on Wall Street back in business, a numbered jungle as we begin trade on July the 3rd ahead of the July 4th holiday. Why bother, of course, just half a day's trade before markets are closed for the Independence Day festivities on Tuesday. Cautious trade in the meantime, as you can see, both in the United States and in Europe. But we did see solid gains across the Asia session with the Hang Seng up some 2% after Chinese factory data surprised to the upside. And some crude realities for you too. Oil prices volatile today as Saudi Arabia extends production cuts of 1 million barrels a day into August. And Russia also cutting exports by a half a million barrels per day. Their combined demand concerns follow the fourth consecutive quarterly drop in prices. A busy show ahead as always. We begin today's show though in the West Bank where deadly violence is flaring once again. Israel says its military operation in the city of Jenin was a counter-terrorism operation. The Palestinians call it a quote war crime against defenseless people. Hadis Gold joins us now. Hadis, the Israelis were saying they were targeting or striking terrorism infrastructure. Do we know specifically what they were targeting and, and whose lives were lost in the process? Yeah, the Israeli military is saying that they utilized airstrikes, uh, mostly from drones overnight and through the uh, ensuing hours, specifically to target what they said was militant infrastructure, command and control centers, they said, as well as explosive weapons manufacturing sites. They said they also uh, destroyed an improvised rocket device. But while we have been reporting for so many months now on these regular Israeli military raids, which started last year in response to a wave of Palestinian terror attacks against Israelis, 
What has changed is it seems as though every single time the intensity just ratchets up and it's now we're we're starting to really see scenes that are incredibly reminiscent, really flashbacks to the days of the second intifada to 2002. And and what happened overnight and is actually still continuing now uh, may be the largest Israeli military operation in the occupied West Bank really since 2002, because not only were there multiple airstrikes, there were also uh, uh, hundreds of Israeli forces in Janine. There were bulldozers that were tearing up streets in Janine. This was to remove or look for IEDs that militants have started to use against uh, Israeli forces. And also scenes that we haven't seen again since the days of the second intifada, Israeli military tanks were seen on the outskirts of Janine. They didn't actually enter the city itself, but they were seen on the outskirts. Now, we know at least eight Palestinians have been killed. Israeli army radio is saying all of them were militants, but no militant group has claimed any of them as their members. And we know that at least two dozen others, if not more, have been injured. One Israeli soldier was injured as well. There is a major question, of course, now of where does this go from here? This is still apparently ongoing just in the last two hours. The Israeli military is saying that there were firefights going on outside of a mosque and that they once again used an airstrike, they said, to remove a threat. They didn't specify uh, what that threat is. Now, the Hamas militant group has now called on all of its cells, it says, across the West Bank and Jerusalem to target the Israelis in any way that they can. So will this uh, somehow spark others in other parts of the West Bank that so far may have been at least somewhat common comparison to join in on the fight? The Israeli military is saying this is not turning into some much broader military campaign. This is a focused operation just on Janine. They say that they want to remove Janine as being a safe haven for militant groups. But Every single time we see these raids, it seems, in recent weeks, they just keep increasing in their intensity and keep going and keep going. And so now the question is, when will this potentially you know, tip over into something much bro- broader than what we've seen in the last few years here? Thanks for your reporting. How does gold there? Now, Ukraine claims it's gaining ground in its ongoing counteroffensive over the weekend. New video shows a Russian tank being destroyed near the city of Bakhmut. A top defense official says Ukrainian forces are advancing near the captured city and have retaken over 37 square kilometers of ground in the past week. And overnight, Russia unleashed another wave of drone attacks across Ukraine, including on the capital city, Kyiv. The Ukrainian Air Force says 17 attack drones were fired 13 of them were shot down. Others didn't reach their targets. Meanwhile, President Zelensky sat down for an exclusive interview with Erin Burnett to discuss the aftermath of last week's brief mutiny in Russia. Zelensky said it shows that President Vladimir Putin is, quote, weak and his grip on power is crumbling. Mr. President, you know, you recently said that you have dealt, and I'll, I'll quote you the way, the way it quoted, with different Putins, It's a completely different set of traits in different periods. Now, of course, he's faced a a rebellion, an attempted coup from Evgeny Prigozhin. Have you seen any changes in in how you think he's acting, in, in his behavior since the attempted coup? Yes, we see the reaction after certain Wagner steps. We see Putin's reaction. It's weak. Firstly, we see he doesn't control everything. Wagner's moving deep into Russia and taking certain regions shows how easy it is to do. Putin doesn't control the situation in the regions. He doesn't control the security situation. 
All of us understand that his whole army is in Ukraine. Almost entire army is there. That's why it's so easy for the Wagner troops to march through Russia. Who could have stopped him? We understand that Putin doesn't control the regional policy, and he doesn't control all those people in the regions. So all that vertical of power he used to have just got crumbling down. Do you believe he's fully in charge of the military right now when it comes to your front line and this counteroffensive? Do you believe Putin is fully in charge of the Russian military? I don't think he fully controls all the processes. He gives orders to the commanders. It's understood. They are scared to lose their jobs, but he doesn't understand and doesn't control the middle layer of the Russian military, nor the lower rank officers and soldiers. And Ben Weedman joins us now. Ben, they also talked about the pace of the counteroffensive and the attempts. And as President Zelensky said in the past, life is precious. And, and the challenges that they're facing on the front lines is that much of the area is covered in mines. That sort of caught my attention, particularly with the, the use of drones that we're talking about. It's slow progress because it's just dangerous to advance. Yeah, the Russians have had months, months, mm. Julia, to prepare for uh, this offensive. And by all accounts, they've dug in deeply. Uh, they've put out lots of mines. There are so-called dragon's teeth, which are designed to s concrete uh, things that are supposed to stop uh, tanks. Uh, they've redeployed extra forces, for instance, here in eastern Ukraine. Uh, there were reports a few days ago that the Russians had moved thousands of their troops to the Bakhmut area. Now, if you look at the amount of territory the Ukrainians said they took over that last week, perhaps 38 square kilometers, that's not an awful lot. Uh, and at this point, now that we're well into the third week of this counteroffensive, the total territory they've gained is maybe 150 square kilometers, eight or nine villages. We've been to some of those villages. Even village is sort of an overstatement about the size of those communities. And at the same time, uh, the Russians are... They're for them, they are also launching offensives. In fact, in the around the town of Svatove in the Luhansk region, the, which is currently that town is currently held by the Ukrainians, but apparently the Russians are making a concerted effort to take that town, and that is one of the few parts of the Luhansk region uh, that is still under Ukrainian control. So it's a real hard going for the Ukrainians. And of course, there were such high expectations uh, that they would be able to make dramatic gains against the Russians before the upcoming NATO uh, summit just in about uh, 10 days time. And therefore, I think the Ukrainians are trying to perhaps dampen down expectations, given the difficulties they're encountering in during this counteroffensive. Julia? Yeah. Yeah, Ben, I wanted to ask you and get your take on something else, too, that President Zelensky said that this war wouldn't be over until um, Crimea was no longer occupied. And we know that dates back right to, to 2014. It ties, at least with a news story and accusations from the Russians suggesting or the Russian security agency that Ukraine had attempted to bomb the car of the Russian-backed leader of, of Crimea in a botched assassination attempt. What more do we know about that? And have we heard from the Ukrainian side on that? 
Well, this is not uncommon that uh, basically collaborators, Ukrainians who have in some way joined the Russian occupation, uh, that they sometimes suffer untimely deaths. The Ukrainians rarely, if ever, actually claim responsibility, but it's well known that behind enemy lines, the Ukrainians have a network of peaceful activists, in fact, we've reported on them, and also essentially partisans who are attacking Russian infrastructure, and particularly those Ukrainians who are working with the Russians. So no word yet from the Ukrainians. Don't actually expect them to acknowledge that they were behind it, but I don't think there's any question that uh, certainly when a high-ranking official in the Russian-supported administration in Crimea has a accident like this, probably there is a Ukrainian hand in it. Julia? Mm. Diplomatically put, Ben Weidman. Thank you so much for that. And you can watch Erin's full interview with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky this Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern. And to France now, where Sunday night protests saw fewer arrests and hope for a cautious calm prevail. Still, officials say over 150 people were detained. And that despite the grandmother of the teenager who was killed by police last week calling for an end to the violence. And now France's mayors have called on people to come together to protest against the violence. Joining us now is Nick Robertson. Nick, good to have you with us. I read uh, this weekend that the average age of those that have been detained is around 17 years old. Are we seeing a, a sort of slowing pace in the protest and people sort of getting to the end of, of this violent period? What are ordinary people saying about it? I think the sense here is that it perhaps has turned a corner this weekend. Some of those arrested as young as 13 years old in an appeal from the president over the weekend to tell parents to keep your young children at home. And that's been one of the sort of central government messages. But another message that's getting currency, and you're seeing it behind me here, several hundred people here gathered outside the mayor's office. This southern suburb of Paris over the weekend was witness to one of the uh, acts of violence that has, that has caught people's attention in the country. The mayor was in his office. The protesters couldn't get in. They went a half a mile, a mile away and attacked his house where his wife and two young children were. And his wife was injured, badly broken leg as she, as she tried to run away. So there's a, you know, a, a groundswell of support that's come out and said, OK, well, we need to we need to come out and say we want peace, we want an end to this violence, we want to support our mayors. Interior Ministry says 99 different city halls across the country damaged. And this sort of really falls in line with what Nael's grandmother has been saying over the weekend, which is this is time to stop the violence. I blame the policemen who killed my grandson. I'm the grandmother. I blame the policeman who killed my grandson. That's all I want. The police, they are here, fortunately. They are here, and the people who are breaking things, I tell them, stop, stop. They use Nahel's death as a pretext. Now they must stop. And what she's saying they must stop is burning the buses. Her appeal was, look, your mothers use those buses. Stop burning the city halls. Your mothers, your families use the city halls. You're destroying your own community. So it is a message that has broad appeal because people do want to see an end to this sort of violence in their communities. Nick, I have two questions on that. I read that President Macron wants to help deeply understand 
What's behind some of this violence and, and the anger that's being displayed beyond, of course, the, the death of the teenager? And we heard from the grandmother there. What, what options are available to him, do you think, to try and um, assuage, for want of a better word, some of the concern? And, and the second question would be, do we know anything more about her health? Um, in, in terms of what President Macron is, is likely to do or able to do is meeting with the upper and lower house of parliament today. Tomorrow is meeting with 220 mayors. But this deep understanding is something that his characterizing or the Lycée Palace is characterizing that will take place over the months coming ahead. And in the past, what President Macron has done is meet with different groups around the country, groups with vested interests. And it's not clear right now who he'll choose to meet with. But listening to analysts here, they feel that there is, yes, a deep-rooted, systemic, racist problem, bias within the police. And that's something that the government needs to address. And they would question the government's not unaware of this. Why haven't they dealt with it before? But when President Macron says he's going to try to gain a deeper understanding, people interpret that as he wants to try to get to the underlying reasons why you have this perceived and documented problem in the police service here and, and how you can address that. But look, let, let's be very clear here. The government has treated this 100% so far as a law and order problem. Very large numbers of police on the streets. That's why we've seen the drop off in, in, in the number of arrests and the, and the amount of violence. But in terms of the government now addressing the underlying issues, potentially that's what is about to begin. But as you rightly question, precisely how will President Macron do that? Will he have these sort of group meetings and go listen to people as he has in the past? Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And this is children, to your point, 13-year-olds. Um, yes. Nick Robertson, great to have you. Thank you. We're back after this. Stay with First Move. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number Limited Edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to First Move and some out-of-the-box thinking, or maybe out of the trough in this case. Cows and other livestock have been major contributors to carbon emissions that heat our planet, well, now, some scientists are saying that they can also be part of the solution to combat climate change, too. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, explains. In the beginning was the buffalo. Tens of millions of them wandering the land, munching wild grasses and using poop and hooves to create rich, fertile soil up to 15 feet deep. Look at this. Yeah. But since Americans replaced buffalo with cows... 
Generations of fertilizers and pesticides, tilling and overgrazing, have turned much of that nutrient-rich soil into lifeless dirt. But not on farms, where they graze cows just like wild buffalo. Well, so adaptive multi-paddock grazing, AMP grazing, is a way that mimics the way bison have moved across the Great Plains. And so it's really about the animals hit an area really hard, and then they leave it for a long time. Peter Bick is a professor at Arizona State University, and he believes that if enough beef and dairy operations copy this simple hack, cattle could actually become an ally in the fight against climate change. I anticipate we'll get a lot of pushback because people are not thinking that cows can be a part of the solution. Not only are you going against the grain of environmentalists who think yeah. meat is evil yeah. for, for lots of reasons, yeah. You took money from McDonald's for this. Yeah, I asked for money from McDonald's for this. I, I wanted to go to big companies because if they don't change, we don't get there. For his docu-series, Root So Deep, You Can See the Devil Down There, Bick assembled a team of scientists. We're really interested in insects that live in poop. Experts in bugs and birds. Yes, Bob White. Cows, soils, and carbon. They spent years comparing five sets of neighboring farms in the southeast. On one side, traditional grazers who let cows roam one big field for months at a time and often cut fertilized grass for hay. Woo! Come on! On the other side, amp grazers who never mow or fertilize. You open a gate, they go through, it takes five minutes, could roll, roll up a wire and with a single line of electrical fence, move their cows from one patch of high grass to the next. That's building fence. This is how easy it is, Tater. While their science is yet to be published and peer-reviewed, Bick says early data has found amp farms pulling down up to four times the carbon, while holding 25% more microbes, three times the bird life, and twice as much rain per hour. If it's a thousand acre farm, it's 54 million gallons of water. That's now washing your soil away versus soaking into your land. Wow, look at this grass. But this is also a human experiment to see whether data and respectful discussion can change hearts and minds. This was grazed about 40 days ago and this hadn't been fertilized in 12 years. Awesome. And when we got out of spending money on fertilizer, it was huge, mm -hmm. huge. And I didn't think it would ever happen. It is such a stress relief. We just don't worry about a lot of it anymore. And you don't even fertilize when you plant your rye grain. Nothing. It sounds crazy, but, but just letting Mother Nature do the work. Yeah. Would it be an interesting thing if you didn't have to pay for fertilizer? Would that be wonderful? Curtis Spangler is one of the conventional farmers in Roots So Deep. And he says his mind was changed when he realized he now has a way to double his herd and quit his second off-farm job. And right now, we're having to dump thousands of dollars into nitrogen every year that really, if we just change a couple things, we might be able to save that money to put it toward other uh, resources. Is that something you're committed to doing now as oh, a result yeah. of this project? We're, yeah. we're really looking and seeing the benefits of it and how we can work it. So as we hit the height of grilling season, a little food for thought. There is ways to produce meat that is not good for the planet. And there's ways to produce meat that's really good for the planet. And that's the nuance that's been missing. 
Bill Weir, CNN, Jasper, Tennessee. Wow, I can't wait to see the data on that. Imagine the savings in cost of fertilizers too. Okay, let's move on. Glamorous symbols of 20th century nightlife are returning to Cuba more than 60 years after they began to fade. Patrick Altman reports from Havana. Throwing a party with 20 musicians for a neon sign may seem like overkill, but repairing and relighting this pre-revolution ice cream shop storefront has been a long time coming. Before Fidel Castro took power, Havana was a sea of neon. After his 1959 revolution, the government seized all private businesses, and as replacement parts became scarce, the signs began to go dark. Cuba uh, was an early adopter uh, of neon. It, it rivaled Paris and uh, New York in terms of the amount of neon. Enter Adolfo Nadal. He co-founded a small band of mostly U.S. and Cuban neon enthusiasts who've made it their unlikely mission to rescue as many of the signs as possible. It helps you see the city in a new way. It brings back a lot of the memory uh, of the city. Uh, people remember these signs from the 30s and the 40s in Havana as well. For the artisans who search out and repair the signs, it's a labor of love that can take months. It depends on the complexity of the metal structure, if it's in good condition, she says. If we have to make new parts, it depends on the availability of the raw materials. Unfortunately, none of these items you can find in this country, and they have to be imported. Repairing Havana's neon signs can seem like a quixotic pursuit in a city where aging buildings collapse every day, and even when they are restored, the signs often stay dark during the regular power cuts here. The sign restorationists say that fixing up the sign is just the beginning of a transformation. The people are more likely to walk down a well-lit street, less likely to throw trash on the ground, and that what they're hoping to give Cubans is not just a restored sign, but a little bit of hope as well. Nudal says the signs are his small gift to the homeland he left at a young age. I'm Cuban-American. I wanted to come back and make a contribution to my country. and. Uh, uh, I'm a neon guy, so uh, I, I figured that neon would be a wonderful thing to do, and it, 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 it goes in keeping with the history of Havana. His team's dream, as they slowly bring the lights back, is that the neon signs are not just part of the city's past, but also its future. Patrick Gottman, CNN Havana. Okay, coming up on the program, Elon's edict, Twitter in a tizzy after Musk's latest mandate, a sudden change of policy that's causing content confusion. We'll explain just ahead. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, the opening bell sounding on Wall Street as investors begin a new quarter as well as the second half of the trading year. How time flies. The previous quarter giving tech investors plenty to cheer. Apple beginning the week above the $3 trillion market cap tier. A solid U.S. economic numbers offset Fed rate hike fear. In early trade today, stocks getting in gear. Quiet trade ahead of Tuesday's July 4th holiday. But Tesla zooming ahead by more than 5%, almost 6% now, after reporting better than expected second quarter sales and record deliveries. Tesla's performance also juiced by price cutting as well as electric vehicle tax credits, of course. Tesla stock, a big winner in the second quarter, up more than 26%. It's actually more than doubled this year, I believe, to Tesla's 
triumph, helping contribute to the best first half of the year for the Nasdaq, actually, since the early 1980s. Tech up 31% since January, thanks in part, of course, as we often talk about on this show, to enthusiasm over artificial intelligence. So Tesla sales and deliveries are soaring amid a Twitter user complaint outpouring. Elon Musk announcing over the weekend that he's limiting the amount of tweets people can view each day. The days of endless Twitter scrolling may be over, at least for now, and that's causing some confusion among users. Sarah Fisher joins us now to help us understand and explain. Great to have you on the show. There's two things going on here for me. There's the fact that Twitter's cut staff and we've seen frequent operational issues. And then we've had um, CEOs that are operating in the AI sphere saying that they do scrape data to help build these systems from the internet. How closely are these two things tied? Oh, it's a very good question. So let's break down the second part first. Right. Twitter is not alone in starting to make big changes in order to sort of create a value exchange that they think is fair for the data on their platform. And you'll recall Reddit last month said that it was going to start charging users that use vast amounts of its data and its backend data. Twitter has also said that it's going to charge, you know, developers some of access to that backend data in order to make more money, but also so that it's not getting, you know, plummet, like hit by these big AI companies taking its data and not paying for it. So Elon Musk has come in, to your point, and has said that he's going to limit the amount of tweets that people can see. So that way he can block people who are just trying to gather a bunch of information and data. The problem, Julia, is that they don't, to your point, have the staff in place to be able to make big changes without users really feeling the impact. And you'll notice that Elon Musk oftentimes when he tries to introduce big changes has to sort of retroactively walk them back because he doesn't have the staff to ensure that the product doesn't get disrupted. You saw this when he tried to roll out Twitter blue subscription service. Then yesterday he said that at first he would limit the number of uh, tweets that a verified user could see to 6,000. Then he increased it to 8,000. Then he increased it to 10,000. I mean, it really speaks to the fact that they can't roll out big changes like this because they don't have the staff and the support to do it really efficiently and cleanly. Yeah, I mean, this is the key. You can buy into the idea that actually trying to limit the amount of scraping and free access to data makes sense. The problem is, do you have the staff and the operational capabilities to enact it if you do? Um, one of the sort of sidelines to this made me think is, does this force people who do see a utility function? And I'm one of them. Twitter is very useful to me. Does it force some of those people to say, OK, if we're going to be severely limited, if we aren't verified, to actually pay the subscription and verify? Is there a sort of backhanded benefit perhaps of this. I think that that's part of Elon Musk's calculus because you've mm-hmm. seen over the past weeks, he's made a lot of changes in order to push people towards that subscription. He made it so that you can't send a certain amount of direct messages unless you're paying for that service. So clearly that's part of his thinking and rationale. But I do think that what he's going to face is advertiser concerns. Remember, uh-huh. advertisers need a lot of impressions in order to slot their ads in between. If you have your sales team going out and selling on a cost per impression basis, and then they're not able to fulfill those sales requests because you don't have enough people consuming tweets. That's going to be a really big problem. So even if there is a calculus here, Julia, that this could help bolster the subscription product, in doing that, he might severely undercut his advertising revenue. And that is his current form of revenue that really is still keeping the company afloat. I don't know that he can afford to do that. 
Yeah, like a leaky bucket. Less ability to access tweets, less eyeballs is not what your advertisers want to hear. I mean, you you know all of these people. You speak to them all the time. What are they saying about the ongoing utility benefit of Twitter that sort of holds people in and says, look, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt or we'll keep watching to see what they do versus the changes that they're seeing and the concerns? I think the valid concerns that they have about this platform. Great question. So you have a ton of Twitter alternatives that are popping up. Mastodon and Post.News and even Meta, Instagram and Facebook's parent says that it's coming out with a Twitter-like alternative. The problem, Julia, is that to create a new social network, the barrier to entry is a lot lower right now because technology is so much better. But that also means it's a lot harder to break through than it was over a decade ago when Twitter and Meta and some of these or Facebook's big social platforms launched. So what Twitter has at its sort of side is that it's the legacy platform. It's still the number one place where people go to have political discourse, discourse around live breaking news, etc. And even though there are a lot of competitors trying to move in, it really does still, even to this day, even under the chaos of Elon Musk, have the scale to continue to be the dominant player. And I don't see anyone moving into its space right now, in part, Julia, because the competitive space is just so crowded. There's just too many people trying to get in. Yeah. Fantastic to have your wisdom. Thank you for making me smarter. Sarah Fisher, there. Great to chat to you. We'll see you soon. Okay, still to come. Bed, bath and beyond will live on. Well, the name will at least. I'll discuss a surprising rebrand with Overstock.com CEO Jonathan Johnson after this. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to First Move. A major e-commerce player in the US and Canada headed for an overhaul in terms of its name, at least. Overstock.com is already known for selling products like rugs and decor right through to furniture items. Well, now it's set to change its name to an even more well-known brand, perhaps Bed, Bath and Beyond. They just spent $21 million to acquire the name and domain of the bankrupt homewares chain, but not Bed, Bath & Beyond's physical stores, which have been closing across the United States. Investors certainly like the idea. Its stock jumped more than 15% in trading last Thursday following that announcement. And here to discuss, Jonathan Johnson is the CEO of Overstock. Jonathan, great to have you on the show. I do feel like it's been a really long time since you've evolved from a sort of liquidator outlet store and an e-commerce business. Do you feel like this is a name that finally represents where you are today? It does. It's been more than two decades since we were a liquidator. About two years ago, we morphed into a 100% home and home furnishings company. And so our overstock name, I think, provided real headwind with both our customers and some suppliers. And so uh, matching our strong business model with the iconic Bed Bath & Beyond name, which more accurately says who we are, we think is a real win for us. You think suppliers would be far happier to do business with you when you're branded as Bed Bath & Beyond versus Overstock. Why? 
Well, you know, there's some suppliers who don't like the idea of being having any taint of liquidation on them. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond's generic meaning uh, says just who we are, while Overstock's generic meaning is not who we are. And I'll tell you this, in the in the seven days since we were announced as the stocking horse bidder for the Bed Bath & Beyond name, we had vendors come to us and we added more than 100,000 new product products, bed, bath, and product, products to our site. So, uh, you know, our thesis that it was hurting us, I think, was really proven true almost immediately. Wow. So this is suppliers that obviously have lost business with the collapse of Bed, Bath & Beyond coming to you and saying, hey, we want to sell our products on your website. And you're like, sure, we'd, we'd love to do business with you. So you've, you're already capturing old business, basically. Exactly. Some of those suppliers, some other suppliers, we just know that in our attempt to add breadth and depth of SKUs, this will be something that will be helpful. We also think it will really resonate uh, with the customer. We were self-aware enough to know that the Overstock name was was probably a headwind and we're looking for a good way to rebrand. Rather than pick a new name and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to try and associate that with home, when the opportunity came up to buy an iconic brand like Bed Bath & Beyond and for the price we got it, just made a ton of sense for us. You know, when I saw this announcement, it, it actually, I have to say, made a ton of sense to me too, simply because when you live in the United States, you get bombarded by emails from Bed Bath & Beyond and through your letterbox as well, coupons that you can spend in store. So my immediate thought was that you get access to a whole host of addresses, email addresses, names of, I'm sure there is some crossover, but potential clients that you can immediately access. I would imagine that your marketing budget is about to explode as you try and access those people and, and get them in and on the website. Well, that's, that's, that's absolutely right about the customer list. There, the Bed Bath & Beyond active customer list is about four times as large as Overstock's. Wow. And even if you peel out just those that have bought in brick and mortar, it's still more than two times larger than us. And so uh, when we spoke to investors last week, we did note that we will we will uh, purposefully uh, deviate from our typical financial recipe card during the next few uh, quarters and spend more on marketing as we really try and uh, talk to, reach out uh, and convert those customers to the new Bed Bath and even bigger beyond. <laughs> Going beyond now. It's the biggest difference, actually, that former Bed Bath & Beyond customers will, will feel is the fact that you have no physical presence, that they're not going to be able to walk into a store. Yeah, that, that's, that is a significant change. But I think a, a positive change will be two things. One, our product selection will be much broader than they were used to at Bed Bath & Beyond. They'll find all or most of the great products that they've found in Bed Bath & Beyond, but we're much deeper in furniture and rugs, as you noted in your intro. Uh, also, I think that they will find our pricing at the new Bed Bath & Beyond uh, just a little sharper. Uh, we really focus on providing smart value. And of course, like Bed Bath & Beyond, we, we're a couponer. The coupons need not be quite as big because our deals are already great, but it will feel very familiar to every Bed Bath & Beyond customer. 
you know, when you made this announcement and I mentioned the share price reaction, investors clearly loved it. Um, it was um, fortunate, perhaps, that it, it masks some of the broader challenges that you're facing after a sort of growth boom during the pandemic for online sales, that the macro environment now is more challenging. Talk to me about what current overstock, future Bed Bath & Beyond customers are doing right now and how their spending is changing. The macro environment in the home and home furnishing area is difficult. Uh, you know, post-pandemic consumers are really craving experiences. Uh, we see travel, we see uh, concerts are, are a big deal. Uh, Nonetheless, Overstock for 12 quarters in a row each of the last three years has been able to uh, churn out a profit. So uh, our business model is a good one. And when we add it to the customer, the customers that Bed Bath & Beyond brought and its great name brand, we think even in the macro environment, uh, we'll be able to perform well. Can you give us a sense of what your forecasts are and um, how quickly you'll start to see the benefits of this um, sort of name rebrand and the access to, to those former customers? What kind of boost are you so looking we, for? We closed this deal on Wednesday of last week and on Thursday we launched our site in Canada. So whether you go to overstock.ca or bedbathandbeyond.ca, you're taken to the Bed Bath & Beyond site. It's really lovely. Uh, and we've seen an uptick almost immediately in Canada. We are going to kind of iron out the wrinkles, use Canada as a beta test. We'll roll out our Bed Bath & Beyond site in the U.S. Uh, in, in early August. Wow. So uh, and, until then, we're really not going to know what its impact is, but we think it's going to be very positive. Yeah, but you're not, you're not hanging around. This is uh, fast-moving changes and... Um... Get on out there. Jonathan, I'll let you go because I know you're a busy man. Much to do. Um, Jonathan Johnson there said thank you for coming on to talk. With thank you for having me on. Nice to chat with you. Likewise. Thank you. OK, coming up here on First Move, Yellen heading to Beijing. Washington's latest bid to fix economic ties with China right after this. China is imposing strict export restrictions on some rare materials used in chip production. The measures will begin in August, and the announcement coming just days before U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is set to travel to China in a bid to stabilize ties between the two nations. CNN's Anna Corrin has more from Hong Kong. The U.S. Treasury Secretary will be heading to Beijing later this week to further improve relations between the two superpowers. It comes two weeks after the successful visit to China by U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken to re-establish dialogue. Janet Yellen is expected to meet with her Chinese counterpart and other high-ranking officials for what we are hearing will be constructive and frank conversations. But like with Blinken's trip, officials say they are not expecting any significant breakthroughs. She is not expected to meet with Chinese President Xi Jinping. Yellen has long signalled the Biden administration's desire to improve communications with the Chinese and lower the temperature between the world's two largest economies, which are deeply entwined. Back in April, while giving testimony before Congress, she stressed the importance of maintaining ties with China and said that decoupling would be a big mistake. And last month at the Paris Finance Summit, on stage with Chinese Premier Li Qiang, she said... 
As the world's two largest economies, we also have a responsibility to work together on global issues. It is something the world expects of us. Yellen's trip comes at a time of heightened uncertainty for the global economy. China is struggling to reboot its economy post-COVID following a slew of poor economic data, while the US is trying to contain inflation and avoid recession. Global challenges and mutual areas of concern will no doubt be on the agenda, but the airing of grievances is also a priority. The U.S. has imposed sweeping restrictions on China's access to advanced technology, specifically semiconductor technology, citing national security threats to the U.S. While the U.S. is concerned about the scope of China's new counter-espionage law and the challenges it could present for foreign companies, we know that Yellen will be meeting with American companies operating in China. There certainly will be a lot to discuss during her three-day visit, but at the end of the day, there's $700 billion in trade between the U.S. and China each year, and both countries need each other. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. And Saudi Arabia extending its decision to curtail all supply through August and Russia's getting in on the act too. Right now we can see Brent and WTI little changed in the session, which certainly tells us something. Anna Stewart joins us now. Anna, walk us through the decision by Saudis, which I think perhaps was um, relatively easily predicted and um, how well we think Russia will adhere to what it's uh, suggesting it will now do too. Well, I think you're right. In terms of Saudi Arabia, it wasn't really a surprising move here at all, but it is sizable, one million barrels per day. And as you can see from that oil price, actually, they're not really being rewarded for their persistence in cutting oil. Uh, Oil price there at $75 a barrel. And actually, for Saudi Arabia, according to the IMF, it needs oil to come in, I believe, around $80 a barrel, $81 a barrel to balance their budget. So not really uh, reaping the rewards. In terms of Russia, I find this move even more interesting. They introduced a very similar cut of 500,000 barrels a day in March for every month for the foreseeable future. And actually, they really overshot it both in March, also in April. They finally met their target, I think, in May. But to promise another output cut, I'm not sure how convinced markets will be. Also, you have to remember that in terms of the incentive for Russia to try and prop up oil prices, it's perhaps not as pronounced as it is for Saudi Arabia, given there is a G7 oil cap that puts oil prices for Russia at $60 a barrel. Currently, it's actually trading at even more of a discount than that, at $57 a barrel. So same decision from two different players, but I think one is perhaps more believable than the other. Yes, and a very different uh, reception, I think, to this decision in light of the ongoing war in Ukraine after four straight quarters of um, energy price declines. So uh, they're certainly seeing something out there in terms of declining demand. Anna Stewart, thank you very much for that. And finally, the most important question of the show, to chill or not to chill? That's the question in the next great debate of 2023. What am I talking about? Well, last week, Kraft Heinz sparked a bit of a debate over an age-old question. How should you store your ketchup? The UK-based branch of the company tweeted, FYI, ketchup goes in the fridge. Exclamation marks. Later, Heinz asked the public to weigh in and over 13,000 votes were cast. The result, 63% of those that responded said yes, of course you keep it in the fridge, while the other 37% are just wrong. I'm a fridge girl. It doesn't last very long either way. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. 
Connect the World is up next. I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.